Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. On this episode of Newt's World, at its peak, the Rush Limbaugh show aired on more than 650 radio stations nationwide, dominating the 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock Eastern time slot with an audience of more than 30 million listeners. Rush worked extraordinarily hard to remain the number one voice for conservatism and the most listened to radio talk show program in the world. Known as America's Anchorman and the Doctor of Democracy, Rush Limbaugh has influenced and touched the lives of millions of listeners since 1984. For over 30 years, he remained the number one voice for conservatism. He was also the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Way Things Ought to Be, See, I Told You So, and The Adventures of Rush Revere book series. Here to talk about his new book, Radio's Greatest of All Time, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Rush Limbaugh's brother, David. David, thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thank you so much for having me, Newt. It's an honor. You know, as his brother, you probably know Rush better than anyone. Have you always shared a close bond, or was there ever a sibling rivalry between the two of you? Growing up, Rush and I were so different because I was like the perpetual kid who wore blue jeans. He was like the perpetual adult that would never wore blue jeans. So he was always way more mature than I was, not just because he was two years older chronologically, but... We always got along, but he would make fun of me and he'd give me trouble all the time. And I'd always threaten that I was going to tell on him when my parents got home. And then I never did. I always forgave him before they got home. But no, we were close other than teasing when we were young. And then as we got older, we grew closer and closer and closer. We were best friends. So when you were kids, did you and Rush have any activities that you enjoyed doing together? Well, we were really into baseball. And so we played Sandlot baseball and Little League baseball. And he was a pretty good pitcher, by the way. So we did a lot of activities like that together, sports. He became certainly a national figure. I've worked with him closely, and 
he was one of the real keys to our winning in 1994 because he did such an amazing job of communicating to the country. Uh, I'm just curious, what's it been like to have a brother who's that overwhelming? To be honest with you, I was so excited when he was syndicated. It was just a big blessing for me because I got to watch him. His talents had not been appreciated, as he has said many times on the air. He was fired seven times. He was a little bit of a rebel, but it wasn't so much a rebellious attitude as he always knew what he wanted to do and what he wanted to be. And so he kept getting fired because he was a DJ, not a talk show host. And in Kansas City and the various places, he would do these gags and whatnot to demonstrate his sense of humor, and he'd make political comments. That's not what they hired him for, and they were afraid of it and all that. But I was very excited to see him succeed. And I remember the first time I heard his bumper music come on preceding his show, I got goosebumps. I was so excited for him and for myself and for our family, I can't describe it. Did you always think that he would succeed eventually? To be totally honest, no, because I didn't know that there was going to be an avenue for his success. But he actually created his own avenue by creating conservative talk radio as a genre. But I knew how talented he was, and from the very first, I knew he was a great broadcaster and had all those abilities, and he was an impressionist. He could imitate anyone. I think that was evident in his show. Growing up, he would do these sophisticated impressions of people, stars and people we knew. And so I knew how talented he was, but we were a conventional family of lawyers, and Rush had no interest in formal education. He couldn't stand it, and he's talked about it. And so... I didn't know an avenue that would yield him the, the opportunity to succeed until he got the program director in Sacramento to recognize his talent and let him run loose. He let Rush be Rush, and the rest is history. Had I known somebody would give him that opportunity, I would never have doubted his eventual success. You grew up in a Christian household. How do you think Rush's faith impacted his life and career? Well... My dad and my mom, we were raised in a Methodist church, and we weren't particularly religious and holier-than-thou type of people. But my dad instilled in us a love for country, an appreciation for the Constitution, for the Declaration of Independence, and for the Framers. And he actually taught us about Marxism. I remember he had the great books in our basement from the time we were little. And he read them from time to time, obviously. And, of course, one of the books, it might have been 49 or 50, you know, Mortimer Adler's series, was Marx. And it was had Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto. My dad one time came to my seventh grade junior high school and gave a lecture on Marxism. Just to show you, he was very learned in politics. He was a conservative conservative. He was a Goldwater conservative way before it was cool. And way back when Goldwater really was a conservative. We were taught those values and Christian values. And I think Rush, I think they informed his entire life. And he became closer to God and to Jesus Christ the older he got, and especially during his final year when we saw how he heroically and courageously handled his illness. And he became closer to Christ and he became very vocal about that when he had not done that before because he didn't want to make his show a platform for Christianity. I was always struck with how much he read and how deeply prepared he was for his show. Had he always been a reader? A voracious reader. I loved reading, but being an ADHD guy way before it was diagnosable, 
I mean, I flipped from one thing to another. I always was jealous that he had that focus, that he would just inhale books like my dad. And I later overcame that, and I inhaled books myself. But at the time, it was tough. Rush never had that problem. And he literally read everything he could get his hands on. As I understand it, Rush actually, by the time he was 11, he's already playing with a Remco Caravella. I have to confess, that is a toy radio I do not remember. <laughs> but tell us about that. He was already sort of leaning towards radio? I think that story comes from me, and it's not a story. I remember that little device, and it wasn't a radio. It was a little blue box. There's been pictures of it online. And it allowed a person to broadcast on the actual AM airwaves within the confines of your home. It didn't have much of a signal, but he got on it and would start broadcasting, whether it was turning Dizzy Dean down on a baseball game and substituting his own voice or some football game, or then just being a DJ and doing records and making comments and little quips in between. But he actually did. And everyone knew that he was into that stuff. And like I said, he was impressionist. He could imitate anyone's voice. And so he would do that. He was very driven, and he was a performer. My mom was a professional singer for a while. Nothing big, but I think she was a performance kind of a person. My dad had a really big personality, too, and would give a lot of public speeches locally. He was actually national debate champion at the college he went to, so our university here in Southeast Missouri. I assume it was small college national debate champion. My dad was really sharp politically and constitutionally and all that. So Rush came by it, honestly. Well, with that background from your mom and dad, was Rush ever nervous about public speaking, or did he just automatically do it? I think the answer is unequivocally, emphatically, no. Never. An interesting little tidbit here, if you don't mind me interjecting it, is everybody always asks us, because I get into political commentary, too, at a much lower level, and wrote a column, and people say, boy, your dinner table must be fascinating, you and Rush and your dad. And I respond to them every time, no, we sat there and listened to my dad pontificate. We didn't say a word. It's not that we didn't say a word, but we just soaked up what he taught us. But the reason I want to make that point is, and I bet you agree with this, I think one of the keys to being a good writer is being a great reader. One of the keys to being a good thinker and a good communicator is a person who's a good listener. Rush was a superb listener, and he soaked in everything my dad taught him, not without a discerning filter, don't get me wrong, but he was a great listener. And I think that quality and attribute helped him as a talk show host because he actually listened to his callers and his listeners, who later considered themselves to be not just fans, but friends and family members by extension. I think that's right. I think people undervalue the importance of listening, and great communicators are almost always people who actually listen more than speak. But now, this actually gets me to a conversation that Chris that I had with Rush when he had us over for lunch one time. He got his first job in radio at the age of 16 as an intern at KGMO, which was the local radio station in Cape Girardeau. I mean, how did that happen? Well, my dad had a fractional interest in that radio station, and there was a guy named Billy Joe Bryant or something like Bryant. I can't remember. He was a character. I can see his face right now. He died a long time ago, and he was the main owner, or at least the main operator, and somehow my dad twisted his arm to give Rush a chance, and he came on at age 15. By the way, Rush was a really hard worker. Although he hated school, 
He did not hate work, but he wanted it on his own terms. And when he started working at KGMO, he got released from school half a day, however they do that. And he was called Rusty Sharp. And he was an instant hit locally among the high school kids. He was really, really talented from the very beginning. It's funny because Callista had also worked at the local radio station in Whitehall, Wisconsin, which I think is WHTL, the voice of rural Wisconsin or something. And so I found myself sitting at lunch with the two of them as they went back into their teenage years comparing notes. I think both of them ended up closing down the station at night, and they had actually very similar kind of experiences. Of course, he went on to make it a world-class career, and she went on to other things, but it was just kind of a fun connection point. Now, apparently, he had a level of love for radio that just drew him on no matter what the obstacles were. But finally, in 1984, he gets the big break. How did that happen? Well, you know, he was living in Kansas City or Pittsburgh, probably Kansas City. And he had tried and gotten fired for various reasons. And then he would try different jobs. He was a salesman for a while. He hated that. He didn't like conventional jobs. I can't remember who it was, some big company. And then, as you know, he was with the Kansas City Royals as group sales director, where he became good friends with George Brett, by the way. And he got the call. I think it was from Kansas City, but I can't swear to this to go out, and the guy's name was Woodruff or something like that, and he hired him, and he pretty much let him loose. And it wasn't initially letting loose. I think, as Russ described it, the program directors were preoccupied with other aspects of the station, so he was allowed to do his own thing without much scrutiny for a while, and then it had such success, the rest is history. It's interesting. He actually had an advantage because they didn't care about him. They were busy trying to groom this great new morning drive time show, and that was all their psychological energy. So it just got to be Rush, and in being Rush, he built a big enough audience that they put up with him. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it gonna like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline.
he gets to an extraordinary moment where he goes from Sacramento to New York, and now he's in the big time. Was he initially syndicated, or was he just at one station? No, just at one station. I remember I was flattered. We had been at each other's weddings, but he didn't have much idea what kind of law I practiced. In fact, I was just a general practitioner in a very small town, like the rest of my family, which is not to disparage it. But I had no particular expertise in contract law yet. And he asked me to handle his contract with KFBK. It was at the Sacramento station. And I did. That was Sacramento. Yeah. And I was really touched that he would trust me enough to ask me to do it. And he didn't know if I was competent or not. And I did. And so what I'm leading up to is in 88, when he was invited to do the syndication, he asked me to come out and help him with a contract negotiation and preparation drafting, which I did. And I remember my Mac Plus computer. I'm the one who got him into Mac, by the way. I will give myself credit for that because he became a total expert at Apple products. And I actually spent 12 hours preparing the first syndication contract without a clue what I was doing. We ended up submitting it to his New York lawyer. And I have never dealt with a New York lawyer. I was a little bit intimidated. But anyway, it worked out. And Ed discovered him, I think, on a drive or somebody told him, he said, this guy can work. He had a deal with ABC or something where he could trade out, he could barter stations and get Rush on 56 stations nationally. And so Ed took a chance, and it turns out he was prescient about Rush's talent and ability to take hold nationally. Was his initial New York home station WABC? ABC. Which had been the leading talk radio station. Without a question. Now, this is another interesting thing, Newt, is that a lot of people don't realize, and he makes it easy, and other people have just... I think one thing bothered Rush in later years, people follow him in this profession, and they assumed that it was easy. All you had to do was be well-versed on politics and have a little bit of a personality, and you could be a great broadcaster. I think that bothered him a little bit because they didn't realize what all went into it, how much work and how much professionalism. Broadcasting is an art. There's a lot of people who are just as articulate and brilliant as they can be who will never have that pizzazz, that special quality that enables them to be a good broadcaster. But he did. And so WABC, the thing people don't realize is he had to give two hours of every day to do a local New York show before he did his two-hour national syndication. Now, imagine how hard that would be. You have to study up on New York local politics and local current events. And in exchange, that's the only way that Ed could get him the national spot. So Rush was doing double prep every day for a four-hour show, two and two. And I remember spending the night with him a few times. I'd go up to New York and stay in his apartment. He lived on 60th between Columbus and Amsterdam. And I'll tell you, two people who lived there, Paul Schaefer, he was David Letterman's keyboardist, I think, and Macaulay Calkin. So it was a pretty highbrow apartment building. But Rush didn't have a nice apartment building, but he was on the 60th floor, and he wasn't making that much money. But anyway, it was very hard for him, but he had this computer. And I don't know if you remember this, Newt, and I don't know how long you've been into computers, but there was this service called CompuServe before the Internet. And Rush would program the computer to automatically download all these papers, New York Times and Washington Post and all that. When I did, the few times I spent the night in his apartment out on the couch because he didn't have a guest bedroom, I hear the printer churning in the morning. So all the stack of 100 pages that he would get when he was on his way out and take them to work and do the show prep. He was a very, very hard worker. When we were doing research for this, our research team found 
the Rush to Excellence 1989 tour on YouTube. And you can actually go back and watch Rush in 89. It's all filmed on VHS tape, and we're going to include the link to that in our show page for people who just want to go and see Rush when he was really first coming out and beginning to be a really important national figure. And you had people literally who would block in their lunch hour to listen to Rush. I mean, he rapidly became for millions of Americans their primary source of information. And then they would go out and tell their friends. And I always thought the part of what made Rush remarkable was that he understood he had to be entertaining in order to educate. That if you didn't entertain, they wouldn't stay with you. And he worked very hard at finding things that were funny, finding things that were different. So you weren't getting just a traditional talk show. You were really getting a program that he had put a lot into. He didn't really have to work that hard at being funny. It was natural. My mom was a total pistol. She was a clown. She was a class clown, and she was hilarious. And Rush inherited her sense of humor. You know, it's kind of funny. I'm a class clown, too, but when it comes to politics, I'm too serious. And this is a funny thing, but my dad was too serious. He'd get mad at what the liberals were doing way back, and I do to this day. But Rush had an uncanny ability to let it slide off his back and still see the humor in it. I'm sitting there on Twitter wanting to nail these people. I'm not trying to badmouth myself, but I think it's a special talent that he had to be able to be funny and lighthearted about something that is deadly serious and that he was every bit as serious about as I was, and I am. But he would make fun of me. I found him to be remarkably down-to-earth. I mean, here's a guy with 30 million listeners, and when you're hanging out in the evening, you know, he's just chatting. He had a style on air but his personal style was much more relaxed and much more normal. When the mic went on, he lit up and he became a broadcaster. Now, I want to make a clear distinction. He was not fake. This was his persona. He didn't try to go into that mode, but that's the way a lot of broadcasters do. You read about Johnny Carson being the shyest person in the world. When they go into broadcasting, they light up, and it's an entirely different aspect of their personality. Every bit is real. In fact, in his case, I think he loved it even more. He loved performing. But... Also, people don't realize, and I want to say this, to what extent rest with the tip of the spear. He took more arrows from evil, mean-spirited people than anyone could possibly imagine, and they don't even know what it's like today. He took it silently and suffered silently, but you're right, he developed a sense of kind of futility in trying to win over these people, and that's why he keeps telling other people, the establishment people in the Republican Party, if they think they're going to Appease liberals, they're crazy because the left is on a relentless pursuit to radically transform this country. And as we're seeing, they're succeeding right now to some extent, to a great extent. But Rush mocked them also with a sense of humor, not mean-spiritedly, but they couldn't stand it when a guy came out and was funny on our side because they had characterized conservatives as stolid, you know, prudes and skulls. And Rush was the opposite of that. So I thought that was great. Now, as to his personality privately. A lot of times he was quiet. He would expend so much energy. And you know our mutual friend Sean Hannity, so much energy in broadcasting that you're spent after a while and you've got to regroup. But I don't think Rush enjoyed celebrity. I think Sean likes it more than Rush. I don't mean Sean likes to be a celebrity. But Sean will go out and mix. People would not leave Rush alone. He was bigger than life. I think he was one of the most recognizable people, even though he didn't have a TV show, but for a few years. Everyone knew who he was, and he couldn't go anywhere without being treated 
as a celebrity. And I think, and you know this, you're a celebrity. The problem with being treated as a celebrity is you're put on a pedestal and people don't treat you like a human being. People just want to be treated like human beings, except for those narcissists among the celebrities. But Rush was anything but a narcissist. I was going to say, I don't think Meghan Markle wants to be treated like a human being. She would like to be treated like the queen she's never going to be. That's just an aside comment here. Part of it also that later in his career, Rush suddenly had a problem with hearing. That was very startling. But here's a guy making a living, as you pointed out, by listening and talking on the air. And suddenly he literally has a very dramatic decline in his ability to hear things. How did he cope with that? Because he just kept going. It first became evident, and he didn't even tell me about this for a while, but it became evident that he had a hearing problem because his voice had changed. And you know deaf people, deaf from birth, how different they sound vocally. And his pitch would change and everything. And finally it came out. But what blew me away, this is a broadcasting professional has two things, hearing, auditory, and verbal. He lost one, essential one of those components, which is essential to doing what he does, and yet it did not stop him. It blows my mind. Now, he had transcription services. He had Dawn, who's awesome. She was a court transcriber. I don't know if she's the original one, but she would, in real time, transcribe what the callers were saying, and before Rush got his cochlear implant, he relied exclusively on that. I don't know how it's physically possible, but that was part of his genius. You know, genius is not about IQ. It's about somebody that's really special in whatever they do, and extraordinary and unique. And you're one of them, I'm not trying to flatter you. But he was a true genius, and part of that was manifested in his ability to overcome all obstacles. And part of it was just sheer desire. This is what he was born to do. He wanted to continue to do it as long as he lived, which, by the way, dovetails into the point of why he continued to do what he did, the love of his life broadcasting, to his very last two weeks of his life, because that was his life energy. And so he was not going to be stopped. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da, 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline.
when Rush was asked, did he have a bucket list towards the very end? And he said, yes, my bucket list is to go to the studio and be with my audience. That's my life. And I thought that really captured the passion and the sense of genuine connectivity that he had developed. Something that I didn't comprehend fully until after he died, I knew how extraordinarily talented he was. I knew how popular he was. I knew how much his fans respected and appreciated him. But it wasn't until he died that I fully grasped the nature of that relationship. He had a bond with his audience. You could see my Twitter feed on my mentions column any day. He died February 17th, a year and nine months ago, 2021. Every day, at least a hundred people tell me how much they miss him and how they considered him the family member, the brother they never had, the brother that they love. What a warm feeling that is for me to see that connection. So he didn't just go in because he was addicted to his love of broadcasting or to hear himself talk or any of that. I view this as he went to the studio and it became a conversation among millions of people who were now his intimate friends. Even though he didn't have much feedback because he didn't have hundreds of callers, but nevertheless, he knew that intimacy and he felt it. I think it was an energy, a force that you can't quantify and you can't even understand it. But I came to fully understand it after he died and I get all this feedback from people. But he had it going out. He loved them just as much. And I think they sensed that, which is one of the main reasons they loved him back. I think he was really influenced deeply by Reagan and by Thatcher and had absorbed the principles that they personified. And it was really interesting. Because he had such a personal bond, I'd, I'd ask him one time, he didn't have very many guests. And the reason was people actually didn't tune in to Rush to listen to somebody else. They tuned in to a degree that's not true of any other radio host I know of. They tuned in to Rush specifically to have Rush explain the world to them. For three hours, he would amuse them. He would entertain them. He would educate them. He would give them unique insights. It was a living bond between them. One of the impacts he had, of course, was in 1994 when he helped us win the Contract with America campaign, and we became the first House Republican majority in 40 years. The freshman class made him an honorary member, and he came and spoke and was with them. And I think it really touched him to know that the younger, newer House Republicans felt so close to him and felt that he was so important to them. Yes, and he didn't seek power or influence. He was just doing what he does. What amazed me about him was he would think better as he was talking. Most people, writers, myself, I think much better when I'm alone and quiet and I can collect my thoughts and I start writing and I think about the same speed that I write so it works out. And I find insights that I never knew I had. One leads to another. But talking, that usually doesn't happen to me. Rush would become more eloquent the more he talked, and he didn't like writing. He was so spontaneous and free as he talked. And he'd come up with these unique insights. People think, oh, he was bombastic and all this stuff and funny. He was, but he was also incredibly insightful. And he used to jokingly say he could see the stitches on a fastball, and he could. He got that from my dad. My dad had an amazing ability to do that. And I remember one time running into you somewhere, and you said to me, I can't believe how smart this guy is. And this is from Newt Gingrich, the genius of the world, saying that. And I thought, wow, Newt Gingrich says you're a genius. He says you're smart. 
That's a pretty big compliment. I don't get a chance to talk about Rush that much. That's why I'm throwing all these things in there. He was open to thinking, to learning. He had opinions, but he was willing to reevaluate things. He was a remarkable human being. And I think you've done a great deal in bringing together radio's greatest of all time. And I think it will be an introduction for a lot of people who know Rush, and it'll be a new introduction for people who've never heard Rush. But before we wrap up, I understand you were recently on a book tour in September with your daughter, Kristen, The Resurrected Jesus, The Church in the New Testament, which you co-wrote with your daughter, Kristen Limbaugh Bloom, which is your fifth book in your Jesus series. What led you into what is now a five-volume series on Jesus? Well, I've written six political books, and I became a believer in my late 30s. It was like an epiphany for me, and I finally realized that the Bible was the inspired Word of God, and it kind of blew me away. So I became fascinated and wanted to accelerate my learning curve. So I read the Bible as much as I could and theology and all this. And cutting the story short, I wanted to share what I learned because I think there are a lot of people situated similarly to where I was who might be able to be benefited from a lay perspective. And while I'm not a scholar, I've studied it a lot. I want to reach people. We're all called on to honor the Great Commission, but I'm not one of these guys like Ray Comfort and go bother people on a street corner. I'd rather do it in writing like this or teaching Sunday school, which I've done. I wrote these books to inspire people to read the Bible. They're about the Bible and they're lay commentaries and devotionals. I just really felt like that was one of my callings to do, and it's been a great joy, especially this last one where I asked my daughter, Kristen, to join me. I want to thank you for joining me. Your brother, Rush, was without a doubt one of the most influential figures in conservative media history. The legacy he has left is going to live on forever. He forged a path for conservative voices in the media. He educated millions of us, and I include me in that. It was really a pleasure talking with you about radio's greatest of all time. I understand proceeds from the book will benefit families of fallen military heroes, something I think Rush would be very proud of. So I want to encourage everyone to order a copy today. And David, I hope you'll join us again in the future when your next book comes out, whatever it's on. I appreciate that. Catherine, Rush's wife, was so great. We're very close. And the job she did on this book blows me away. So I want to give her the credit. I had very little to do with this. I love that my name's on it because I'm totally supportive. She and her team did the work. And I also want to say that Rush revered and adored you and had so much respect for you. You have to know that. And I want to thank you for how supportive you were to him throughout his professional life. It was a genuine mutual admiration and I think deep personal friendship that we had. It was. Thank you very much, David, and we will look forward to your next book. Thank you so much, Nick. Take care. Thank you to my guest, David Limbaugh. You can link to his new book, Radio's Greatest of All Time, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. 
I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. From football playoffs to basketball madness, TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at Amazon.com.